Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Thor Ragnarok. Now I know what you're thinking. How did this happen? Well, it's a long story. This week we have a packed guest roster for you of returning Merry Marvelites. Okay, so who is this you brought me today? Uh, God of Mischief and Master of Putting Distracting Gifts in My Timeline, Brendan Agnew of Synapse. Oh yes. The Raging Jade Giant returns in placid 7PHD having human form, for now. It's Jerome McIntosh of Gameburst. Good day, sir. Uh, Neil Taylor, the kid dog, is either our resident supporting Sorcerer Supreme, or he's trying to start a revolution, but he didn't hand out many pamphlets, so the only ones who turned up were his mum and her boyfriend, who I hate, so revolution <laughs> didn't God. happen. Uh, hello, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> you can be called just this once. The one who sees all, Joshua Garrity of Cane and Rince, is the one pulling off the real resistance, one so secret that they can sneak out of their hidden base in the canyons and march right out in front of the palace and across the Rainbow Bridge without anyone noticing. Hello, Josh. Hello. <laughs> Sparkles himself, the Lord of Thunder, hailing from parts unknown, but wherever it is, they have hurricanes. Hello, Karu Nagisa. Hello there. And by his side, the hard-drinking, hard-fighting, hard-tasing, occasionally angry girl of sequentially yours, Debbie Morse. It's a Valkyrie, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> my accent, my Jeff Goldblum is slipping, by the way. Uh, and, uh, and finally, uh, the, uh, the rightful queen of Asgard, uh, goddess of death and an understandable cause of infatuation for any mad gem-fancying titan, it's Sharon Sharp. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> now, we have a ton to talk about with this one, and I'm going to kick us off with a little piece that I wrote about the use of humor in Marvel movies. Okay, so Sharon and I watched a great video from Just Right 
called What Can Writers Learn From Wonder Woman? Uh, and it made a compelling argument and it really got us thinking. Uh, what it suggests is that Wonder Woman, uh, the film, was particularly strong and refreshing because of how honest and emotional it was. And while the script was peppered with humour, it was never used to undercut its own dramatic purpose. Instead, humour was gated off for lighter scenes, allowing Diana tr to try on dresses while Lucy Davis said funny, understated things. Once the bullets started flying, it was business time, and no humour was allowed to enter, keeping those scenes pure and lending them the video posits far more dramatic weight than Marvel fare. That seems compelled to crack wise, almost as though the writers are ashamed of the silly superhero premise and have to make a joke to acknowledge it, or, as Just Right says, using the joke to distract from the dramatic shortcomings of their film. The word used here is bathos, a term coined by Alexander Pope in 1727 to describe a tone shift from serious to trivial for comedic effect. Two examples cited as negative uses uh, of this are Doctor Strange's cloak wiping away his tears as he embraces who he has to be juxtaposing this with the Tobey Maguire balling up his fists in Spider-Man 2 and re-embracing being Spider-Man after Mary Jane is kidnapped by the villain. Again, this scene especially for those who love Spider-Man 2 is a fine example of emotional honesty without polluting with humour. The other scene of negatively applied bathos cited is Rocket finally standing up in Guardians, a scene I might note is one of my very favourites in the movie. Oh, what the hell? I don't got that long a lifespan anyway. Now I'm standing. You all happy? We're all standing up now. Bunch of jackasses standing in a circle. Just Right maintains that the joke is funny, but the drama of the scene was destroyed. Just Right considers mm -hmm. us a culture adrift in bathos parody is an acceptable use of this serious films are not Doctor Strange is apparently an unwitting parody of straight superhero movies like Spider-Man 2 there is a dramatic cost that has to be paid no matter how funny the joke is now the same as with every frame of painting when they stated that Marvel had no memorable themes I disagreed immediately but as with all truly challenging arguments, I had to formulate a counterpoint that was just as solid and worthy. Luckily, the next Marvel film was not only somewhat tangentially similar to Wonder Woman in terms of the movements of demigods, but one of the funniest of all Marvel's outputs so far, and it makes for a cracking rejoinder. So here it is. Some Marvel movies have humour in them just to lighten the load. The Incredible Hulk while not technically a Marvel movie, is kind of in the canon, similar to Wonder Woman in that it tends to separate the serious action and drama from its moments of levity, which we all know are there to help you through the darker material. Iron Man 3 mashed the humour in so hard, though that comes naturally to Shane Black, that real emotional weight was drained out of Tony's PTSD, which was abandoned halfway through as a theme and left for other movies to address. All three Captain America movies keep the humour dry and spare so that you can appreciate it when it arrives, but Just Right singled out the airfield scene in Civil War as exemplary of the undisciplined and slapdash use of humour. For how can we take this clash seriously when it's trying to be so much fun? <clears throat> I believe I already said something along these lines in our Civil War show that that scene to me is a masterful realisation of the clash of comic book characters, keeping the fun for the first two phases as they butt heads and it escalates, 
the polar opposite of the ponderous, portentous punch-up in Batman v Superman. Batman v Superman's battle is pitched to us as a clash of titans, something impressive and epic, something we want to finally see, but the actual procedure is grimy and pathetic, vicious and joyless, punishing us for even thinking about it. And right there you have the central flaw in that film. It wants us to feel it is important and exciting. Important! But what it lays down feels ruinous and depressing, an event you instantly want to undo, like stealing your dad's car and crashing it into a tree. I apologise for making Beavis dodge the whipping boy again, but the two films came out weeks apart. One battle of the heroes made everyone sad and angry, the other was Civil War. I watched that whole film, Civil War, with utter engagement, hoping that each spike of danger wouldn't hurt the characters I cared about, yet willing them all to address these clearly sobering and contentious issues in a way that was true to them as established personalities. That's something that Marvel movies are getting better at the longer each hero is on screen. If you think about it, this central conflict after the first act and a half of build-up and emotional involvement could only ever be pitched as funny and exciting, playing with the tension, or tense and tragic, hammering home how wrong this is. Yet, somehow, it manages to be first one and then the other, in a way I personally find extremely accomplished. It's in the third movement of the airfield fight that things get serious. Vision descends from up on high and is so wise and yet cold and frightening as he draws a line in the sand that the tone changes, not clumsily but with confidence. The divine superego just entered the fray, unbalancing the flawed humans who were previously scrapping over their variously pitched ideals. The Vision is extremely powerful and single-minded. Someone is about to get very badly hurt. This is the point of no return in the Civil War story, and everything afterwards, while flavoured with occasional humorous lines, has a more regretful air, like everything in Fellowship after Gandalf falls. But it is this scene that Just Right dismisses as dramatically nonsensical, that's a direct quote, for daring to have characters say funny things to each other as the danger rises, completely disregarding the heartbreaking third act. The same as those people who bade for blood and beloved character deaths to seal the deal on the tragedy, as though broken bonds of fellowship are not relevant to us as humans. Now, Ragnarok is different, with a brand of humour more like the sublime duet of Guardians of the Galaxy films, we tumble from minute one through action and drama, loud and quiet, and humour pervades throughout, knowing almost no boundaries. But how is this okay? Why does it work at all if Just Right made it clear that these gags prevent the drama from having impact? Well, let's go to zombie movies. Many of them are somber in tone like 28 Days Later. A few try to really scare you with the hopelessness more than anything else like The Walking Dead or gross you out with the gore like Cannibal Ferox. Many, like Return of the Living Dead, are extremely silly on purpose. My favourite book, World War Z, takes a very serious and intelligent approach and crafts an entire globe coping with the outbreak over a long period of time. But my favourite movie does all of these things at once. Shaun of the Dead is, if we take away the subjective humour, a story about how England collapses in a weekend under the crushing weight of a Class 3 outbreak. That is serious stuff. And the gore is genuinely gross and shocking at times. Edgar Wright and company dabble in hopelessness. It's at the corners, just out of the frame in every shot, and it's scary. But it's scary because the characters are all so fun and funny that you don't want any of them to die, 
because that would diminish your fun and allow that threatening hopelessness to creep in and occupy the previously mirthful human world. Shaun of the Dead is perfect because of the humour and because it's often delivered during the worst of times and when those losses occur, you feel them. Thor Ragnarok stands alongside the Cornetto trilogy with a very similar tone. We are talking here about the end of a home. Remember in Thor The Dark World when the threat was that all the light in the universe would be extinguished and a big spaceship attacked all of London? Even if you like the film, you would probably admit that those stakes are too high to be believable and because you would probably need the lights on in Captain America The Winter Soldier. We can predict that Marvel's worst villain, Malekith, is unlikely to succeed in his ridiculously ambitious and pointless plan. But this time the stakes are lower. It's a world we can lose and the world does end. But it's a world, a small place that can be lost and that will affect a great many people. It's significant that Shaun of the Dead is British and all of the humour in Watiti's output is distinctly Kiwi. Just watch Eagle vs. Shark or What We Do in the Shadows or Hunt for the Wilder People or other great New Zealand thrillers like Housebound or Braindead or Black Sheep. Both cultures have that ability to witness something truly ghastly and take it in their stride and say something personable in response. You'll notice that that is what hobbits do. It is the opposite of epic, the opposite of portentous. It is gallows humour, and it's an ingrained and historical part of our culture. It's a coping mechanism, and it's a way of staving off panic and despair. Wonder Woman may not need it, but she's a demigoddess from a fantasy island where there's no such thing as death. We need it. And clearly with the rise of comedy like The Office and Parks and Rec and Community and Archer and Bojack Horseman, you guys in America are getting pretty good at gallows humour as well. That doesn't make Wonder Woman's purity of tone the wrong way of doing things. And since I love both films, I think I actually still prefer Wonder Woman a little bit to Thor Ragnarok, and I love them both that much. I can attest that both are of huge value for different reasons. Just Right went on to say that after the departure of Joss Whedon, in an attempt to mimic his style, the Marvel movies became, and this is again another direct quote, all jokes, all the time, no matter the cost. In his words, a pretty cynical approach. Keep the audience vaguely engaged with distracting humour all the way to the credits. But this approach is not a recipe for lasting storytelling. It comes off, in his words, like the Marvel team are actually afraid of emotion afraid that they will be the butt of the joke and that they will be seen as cheesy. If polygons is emotion, how many emotions is people? Let's not forget that mere seconds before the cape wiped his eyes in Doctor Strange, there was a truly beautiful scene with the Ancient One holding on to her last seconds just to watch the snow fall. That scene had weight and impact and we needed to smile through the tears and feel like life could return to a sense of normality after a great loss and a massive new responsibility. That is fragile and that is real. And that moment of emotional truth is not alone in the MCU. I had become part of a system that is comfortable with zero accountability. Iron Man. Hulk runs away from Betty Ross forever. The Incredible Hulk. My greatest creation is you, Iron Man 2. Nothing's been the same since New York, Iron Man 3. As a funeral pyre burns, Loki destroys the furniture of his prison, the Dark World. It's been so long, the Winter Soldier. Take my hand, Guardians of the Galaxy. 
Groot Spores, Guardians of the Galaxy. Petting a Raccoon, Guardians of the Galaxy. One less thing to worry about, Age of Ultron. You didn't see that coming, Age of Ultron. By the way, Age of Ultron gets a bad rap. Look them in the eye and say, no, you move, Civil War. I could do this all day, Civil War. But he's my friend. So was I, Civil War. Rocket watches fireworks in space. Brother, whatever I have done to wrong you, whatever I have done to lead you to do this, I am truly sorry. But these people are innocent. Taking their lives will gain you nothing. Take mine and end this. You're gonna need a rain check on that dance. All right. A week next Saturday at the Stork Club. You got it. Eight o'clock on the dock. Don't you dare be late. Sorry, boss. The guy rabbited. Just stay awake. Eyes on me. Oh, I'm clocked out here. Not an option. It's okay, boss. This was never gonna work. They didn't have something. I'm with you to the end of the line. No, Groot! You can't. You'll die. Why are you doing this? Why? Job's finished. Now I need you to turn this bird around, okay? We can't track you in stealth mode. So help me out. I need Humans are odd. They think order and chaos are somehow opposites and try to control what won't be. But there is grace in their failings. I think you missed that. They're doomed. Yes. But a thing isn't beautiful because it lasts. It's not your fault. She made her choice. Now, admittedly, this wonderful scene is undercut immediately afterwards by Scott saying, This is awesome. But here's a scene that doesn't. Uh, that shield doesn't belong to you. 
You don't deserve it. My father made that shield. He may have been your father, boy, but he wasn't your daddy. I'm sorry I didn't do none of it right. I'm damn lucky you, my boy. What? Yondu, what are you doing? You can't. Yondu! No. No. Oh. Oh, come. No. No. Oh, no. If you're nothing without this suit, then you shouldn't have it, okay? God, I just sound like my dad. Spider-Man Homecoming. And I'm going to guess at least one major moment in Black Panther and more than that in Avengers Infinity War. There's right and there's wrong. Marvel are not afraid of emotion. They just save the peaks for the right moments. But I don't want to say all that at the expense of Wonder Woman. I believe in love. Patty Jenkins maintains that cheesy is not something she wants to have to consider. She made that film from the heart and a place of sincerity, and that is never something I would admonish. As a writer, I penned the serious and sincere Tiger's Eye and the funny and irreverent Princess Thieves. Both books feature lead characters who stand for something and have their resolve seriously challenged, and I am proud of the way that both stories turned out. It doesn't have to be one or the other, and it is quite possible to emotionally engage with someone while laughing. Despite the bleak worldview of cheap, embarrassed, cynical productions that Sage of Just Right paints, and here I must stress that despite my hearty disagreement with him on this point, I do really like his channel, and in particular the video on how CGI transformed animated movies. I believe we are experiencing some of the best storytelling in our history right now, in this troubled era. Because this is when we need it most. Let's talk about the themes of uh, Thor Ragnarok. We could just go moment by moment, but there's a reason that we don't cover comedy much in this show. We, we haven't done Monty Python and the Holy Grail yet, even though it's one of the funniest films ever to us. Because I just sit here quoting. Because it's really funny when the knights who say knee say knee. <laughs> <laughs> we have to explain why it's funny. And if you're explaining why it's funny... It's not funny. It's not funny. You can't explain why it's funny! But luckily, Thor Ragnarok is chock full of themes. It's got... St- 
stuff in there that people who've just gone, it's just popcorn. What, what did that asshole say on Twitter? It must be exhausting having to constantly apply this way of thinking to every piece of popcorn entertainment. You memorised it every word for word. <laughs> My... When I am exhausted with that, sir, I am exhausted with breathing. My counter to that yeah. was, that's like saying uh, of Usain Bolt, all that sprinting must be exhausting. But it's what I do. Some of us <laughs> got to run, regardless of paycheck or audience, some of us got to run. And we are here tonight to talk about all the deeper shit in Thor Ragnarok, as well as all the stuff that's funny and beautiful. And we're going to start with... The theme of the sins of the father, because this is something that pervades throughout, but it pretty much hits you right away. It is out there on the floor. You guys can uh, just pick it up, uh, run with it, and, uh, you know, uh, show me something. Well, I'm going to jump on this particular hammer because I just rewatched the 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 original, like it came out 20 years ago, like the first Thor, <laughs> and... <laughs> And when when you watch that through the lens of Ragnarok and what happens, like there there are things that Odin is doing that make a lot more sense in terms of his his concerns and his regrets and his his hopes, both when dealing with Loki and with Thor. Like the like the look that Anthony Hopkins gets on his face when Thor says, "You were an old man and, and a fool." fool. Like I watched that just a couple of days after seeing Ragnarok, and I was like. Oh my god, he's seeing his firstborn all over again. It's happening all over again, and he is terrified of that. And with Loki, it's almost like, you know, he, he picks up this this child who is not of his blood because he has seen how sour that can turn. And so, like, just throughout the entire... I mean, throughout the entire uh, Thor series, you know, there's a lot of that going on of, of Odin... Really, kind of knowing he's a bit of an f up, and and trying to to make up for it through his kids. Yes, and the the fact that that becomes overly controlled. That the, the you're absolutely right about going back to uh, to the original that scene. Um, but you're not king. But you're not king. Not, not yet. yet. That looks like somebody rigidly trying to hold on to this plan mm. mm-hmm. and sensing that when he's gone the person with the sense of overarching control is not going to be there anymore and he can't put all those threads in Thor's hand not yet and you mentioned him seeing his firstborn again in four. I'd say not only that, but he sees himself. Mm-hmm. He sees a younger version, the more kind of warmongering, empire-building version of Odin that we see in the murals and the art that we uncover um, later in the film. Like he, he sees the darker side of himself, and it scares him because he's managed to quash that. He's managed to try and build a better world from the, the bloodshed that he's caused in his younger years. Um, yeah, and like Anthony Hopkins is, he's not really in this film for very long, but he does a lot with uh, what he's given. Um, I, I really love that scene between him and Loki, just saying, like he's at the end. He's you know he's at the end, and he's not he's not bitter. He's not trying to be um, you know too. Eh. 
he's not trying to be too hard on his sons but he's being realistic about the 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 horrors that await them and uh, being realistic about the trials that await them and he does there is a you know a few you know a sense of regret coming out of him like a twinge of regret coming from his performance but at the same time it's like it's time i need to i need to pass this on to the next generation i need to pass on this responsibility i can't i can't exude this stranglehold over um asgard over my children uh, to varying degrees whether it be by a ham via a hammer or via a, their own prison um he he's realizing that look i've got to i've got to let this go i've got to let trust the next generation to do the best they can with the mess that i've made yeah because um one of the biggest things when you look back on throughout the four movies you you see the big trend of because he's been instead of explaining himself or uh telling his children or those around him uh the mistakes he's made he's taken the path of hiding it and trying to force them not to make his mistakes but it's it's essentially backfired because it created a resentment or a lack of insight that he could have delivered by giving examples of his major mistakes because he painted himself as to be the grandiose all-knowing all-wise person but if his children knew that even he made mistakes you can tell that it would have helped a lot in their development Mm, absolutely if he'd been able to say to thor i conquered all these worlds and i now really regret doing that i wish i hadn't or i wish i'd done things differently that would have taught thor way more than looking at the evidence your father holds all this power and wanting to go out and emulate that power yeah i mean not just thor i mean loki like yeah. look, there is you know and this film demonstrates it there is there is something that like loki is not entirely selfish he's not entirely self-motivated there is a heart in there that's been encrusted with bitterness and rejection and envy of power and all of that stuff there's a heart buried underneath that dark dark crust of blackness but there it is there and if odin had just been honest with him and just been you know look Look at what power does to, has done to me. Look at what being king has done to me psychologically, and uh, you know all of that stuff. Maybe Loki would have been a king worthy of the throne instead of what he's become. That's sort of one of the themes that's coming back. Is um, Loki's one of his main purposes in this film is to watch as Thor realizes that Odin did to Thor what. Loki realized in the first film Odin had done to him and watching Thor go through some of the same journeys Odin lied to him Odin made him think that something was true about the world and about what is important in the world when that's not the case in the first Thor movie Loki's main goal was to destroy the frost giants he thought by doing this he'd become worthy of being Odin's son um, so one of the things that's come across is the events of uh, the first storm have made him the way he is. He's become so bitter and jaded and he feels that no matter how, no matter what sort of legacy he tries to leave on the world, he will eventually go to sour. 
And if you look at the fact that all three of Odin's children have basically, in their own way, tried to emulate and better his achie- what they perceive as his achievements, the problem is that when they do it, he doesn't perceive it as an achievement. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, yeah there's, there's something in that. There's something in that kind of having the celebrity father who's a huge success and... and you know, from the ground up, built a company or, you know, built a career in film or et cetera, et cetera, pick your field. And the children feeling like they're they're lost in his shadow and, and wanting to emulate. And in the case of Loki, literally becoming their father yeah. and trying wow. to uh, to kind of emulate the, the kind of uh, way that he operated and not doing a particular good job of it but not the the thing that i find interesting about the opening of um of for ragnarok it's not really it it's it's indicated that loki's doing a bad job of being a king like he's not really well organized he's not um he's not making sure that the nine kingdoms are, are properly uh, looked after but he's not he's not depicted as being overly tyrannical it seems like as like the you know the residents of asgard are kind of like uh, he's not the best but it's all right i suppose However, and, and that's really interesting that ultimately is kind of is loki's motivation not only in you know for one or and and also the avengers is just to be his father and being his father is just is constantly met with failure mm. it, it for me for you to love me i have to become you yeah yeah um but he what what he does replicate um in that beginning scene and you talk about the performance from anthony hopkins props to that tom hiddleston impression because that mm. was really good yeah. oh yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the, but, the line reading of oh shit was yeah. just amazing <laughs> Absolutely. And his awkward little nervous grins and his yeah. hey, brother, uh, son. <laughs> but that what what he's replicating there is the hedonism that ancient Greece descended towards, mm-hmm. and, and that's something. And and Rome, yes, absolutely. Name um, your fallen uh, empire. <laughs> indeed, but that's something that the the uh, the Norse pantheon would really look down on yeah you're supposed to wait to valhalla for that one yeah absolutely yeah. and even then drink like a man mm. giant flagon consider that anthony hopkins was also um hrothgar, hrothgar. then yeah. um then yeah As we said way back in 2012 remember that neil jerome we did we did we were talking about the mcu as it was happening just before the avengers and we were like well this is shaping up pretty good oh my god it's really good. <laughs> <laughs> fingers crossed for next week we said after we did the first avenger <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, incidentally, something I was reading a, a piece about um, the the imperialism and colonialism in Thor Ragnarok, which we're going to come on to shortly. Um, but one comment in that was to do with um, Loki's color palette and mm-hmm. the fact that it is reflective of Hellas, green and black, with little yep, yep. gold colonial like mm-hmm. stolen gold on it yep. as well. Yeah. Um, I think I may have read the same article. It was talking... It might have been a different one, because I've read a couple in the past few days. One that talked about Loki's mentality. In the first Thor, and they went on with this, he doesn't want to be king of Asgard to be king of Asgard and have the power. He wants to be loved. As far as he's concerned, his father is adored and loved, so he's trying to be his father so that he can get that love he even says in, in words, all I ever wanted was just to feel like I was 
truly equal to Thor, rather than just being this, yeah, yeah, you're truly equal, except for you. But you're truly equal. Both of you could be king, except for you. This constant sense of, yes, but I can't actually be king, can I? You know, it's always going to be this guy. So obviously that resentment for Thor has, has sort of built up. But, you know, ultimately he's not really a... A villain. He's just selfish and capable yeah. of, like Natasha said, he killed ninety people in four days. So yeah, he's he's a mass murderer. But yeah, you know, yeah. forgive and forget. He's adopted. <laughs> he's adopted. <laughs> that, actually, that actually is a one-off joke that actually brings up an interesting dynamic that Thor and Loki share in a nature versus nurture thing, and how they both resemble Odin and also don't, mm. because. Odin is obviously terrified of them becoming too much like him. I mean, there's there's a common sort of, you know, my my children will become me and then replace me, mm. sort of just general Jungian fear that you've got with, you know, a lot of mythical uh, figures. And that definitely comes into play in, in the first Thor. But in this movie, you, fe- you, you kind of feel like Odin is part of his peaceful nature. He's just like you know what, I'm past that. Either you are going to become too much like me or you won't. I'm going to trust that what makes you different from each other and from me is going to make you better. And he kind of plays this off against both of them, more obviously with Thor, because he gets that kind of like secondary vision thing. But that that feels very much like what Odin has done. He's moved past being concerned about them becoming him. And he's just like, you know, what's going to happen is going to happen. Mm. We can actually segue fairly easily to the next uh, theme here. And by the way, I have to extend major props to Fangirl Jean for an amazingly succinct Twitter chain analysis of uh, Thor Ragnarok. Since she covered all the bases in one go, we can't help but go over the same ground. And since we have more time, we can elaborate on a lot of the thematic points that she hit on. So, Although I cannot wait to read her spoiler-filled review because she was trying to get uh-huh. it yeah. fairly spoiler-free. I'm sitting on tenterhooks waiting for it to be <laughs> Be out. Fangirl Jean, at follow her. Colonialism and imperialism, my God. And bearing in mind this was uh, crafted by a Kiwi. Yeah, a, mayor, a half Maori Kiwi. Mm. I, I love this aspect of the film, uh, especially considering what's going on in uh, Britain right now. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of, I think a lot of entertainment um, has been focused, uh, and, and rightly so, on kind of what, you know, the, uh, the American situation with Trump and all of that, just because it's much more explosive and uh, maddeningly stupid than the kind of more insidious and subtle stupidity of Brexit. Um, <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> That's a phrase that's going to show up in textbooks in 15 years' time. Every British person I know can tell you uh, a story of an encounter they've had with an older uh, member of the British public who said something along the lines of... Oh, it's a shame what you know what's come of Britain. We used to have an empire, you know. Yeah, um, you like conveniently forget that this was an empire that the you know in in Africa we had camps that um, a certain Adolf Hitler uh, drew inspiration from for his own activities. Um, an empire that enslaved native populations. An empire that massacred people in the million the millions 
the British Empire has so many skeletons in our closet, they are comparable. The horrors are comparable. Uh, but the difference is, we won those wars. We get to write history and forget the, the monsters that we became during, during the British Empire. And what I love about Kate Blanchett's character is that she is effectively an imperialist Tory. Like, she is uh, somebody going, remember when Britain was an empire? Remember when we were great? Let's go back to that. Let's remember our imperial roots and, and reclaim our power on the world stage. I am your Make iron Britain lady. Make great again. Yeah. Make, make Asgard great again. <laughs> and and I, I suppose, so I'm, you know, with, I'm focusing on Britain because of, uh, just because that's our cultural experience. But this can be applied to all colonial activity. Every country in Western Europe has blood on their hands in this situation. And I think Taika Waititi having, you know, you know, being of um, being of the heritage of the of people who suffered at the hands of colonialism, it it makes his his analysis of this stuff more biting and more uh, and just less hand wavy than I'd expect from a British or American director. He that 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 image of the horrors of the empire literally being painted over being hidden away being obscured by the stories that we tell ourselves but don't you know don't explore the the you know beyond beyond the kind of symbolic and um surface level details the, the that all that stuff is so brilliantly handled and so brave and cutting and to have that in a film it, with the f- fucking embarrassment that's going on in British Parliament right now is just a revelation to me. It makes me shocked that people could look at the the fact that people are noticing this and go like, what? You're applying all of this to a silly popcorn? It's, it, it, they put halos on Thor, Loki, and Odin in the painting that was painted over the death and blood and car. Like, that's how how do you how do you not see that it's it's super obvious and you know of course the fact that Taika Waititi comes from where he comes from played a part in that and what really strikes me about Hela's the the way she pulls down the facade is part of I think what plays into her being at least in the top two or three Marvel villains as far as I'm concerned is that she's not just about let's make Asgard great again. She's also like, let's let's be honest here, guys. We're conquerors. You know, it's not just about going back and taking things over. It's let's be truthful. Odin lied. That hurts you. That hurts me. That hurts your brother. Odin lied. Daddy lied to you. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to tell you the truth. And the truth is that we are going to kill everyone and take their stuff because we want it. And... Like I, like oh my god, that's really good and terrible and and it's Blanchett just nails that and the way that plays into the colonialism. You you kind of you're not on Hella's side, but you totally understand why she is so pissed off. I think we we as a culture are ready for that brand of evil. I think in 
of five years ago we might have hand waved Kate Blanche's character as like this is cartoonishly evil <laughs> now um, definitively that is not the case we have several people in positions of power who are effectively Kate Blanche's character in this movie Hella only less um, lovable and, yeah only less lovable <laughs> and, and I <laughs> just as you know we're on uh, on the topic of uh, of Kate Blanche's performance Usually, um, I, I expect a more kind of intense and quiet performance from Kate Blanchett. I love that she goes full Rada with this character. Mm-hmm. She's oh, yeah. just no problems with chewing the scenery. And I, I mean, when you know, chewing the scenery is often used as a negative. In this case, this is Al Pacino chewing the scenery. She's having fun. Mm-hmm. She's she's really giving some flavour to this character. I I would just like to point out, by the way, not claiming pro. However, I suggested Kate Blanchett for Enchantress some years ago, and <laughs> I was thinking specifically of um, the uh, Thor versus Hulk um, animation Ooh. where Enchantress is used as a front for Hela. <laughs> uh, yeah. And she's basically Enchantress in this. She even has Executioner, so it works. Indeed. I can't wait to see her show up with a skull face in Infinity War one or two. Yeah, like I, I'm yes. pretty convinced. I'm pretty convinced she's going to be death and be like, "Well, I can't draw power from Asgard anymore. Mm. Guess who needs to die? Everyone. Guess what happens to the goddess of death when she dies? Mm. And that's a, that's pretty much a deadlock mm. um, for for Infinity. <laughs> Uh, but the other thing that I think to to play into to what you were saying there, Trim, is that the um, we've been robbed of our distance in terms of fascist colonialism. We can't just say, "Oh, they were the bad guys," because what's been happening is we've we've realized, "Oh shit, we could become the bad guys." We are turning into you know it's it's not a it's not a abstract concept anymore and so we can't treat it that way anymore and we've stopped being able to just go oh eh, that's whatever they're just they're just cartoon nazis no we've we've seen cartoon nazis on cnn being elected to public office and sort of like oh we can't just sweep that aside yeah it's it's in fact going on with the with the star wars parallel it's one of my favorite bits in return of the jedi it's not the battle with darth vader it's luke staring at his own black gloved hand Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i think part of it is also that we are now have more media that reckons with the legacy of colonialism Mm. i mean star wars yes talks about imperialism there's an empire um, but it's in very really broad always, strokes. It's in very broad strokes, and honestly, it's not until we're getting a little bit. We got a little bit of it in uh, Force Awakens, but for the most part, the legacy of an empire doesn't really figure into a lot of our media. Whereas in Thor, we have to reckon with the fact that Odin did terrible things. Odin and Hela did terrible things. But it also built the Nine Realms, which are a relatively peaceful group of planets on the world tree. And that's why this depiction of imperialism, I think, is so important. It's because, you know, in Britain, we live... We, I mean, Asgard in this film, I don't know about the past f- films, but in this film is effectively a metaphor for Britain for me, uh, a post-imperial Britain that is, you know, benefiting from 
you know, and, and on its surface seems, you know, nice and, and lovely. And we've got our little cottages and we've got a local pub, what have you. We're all happy and what have you. It, see, it seems on its surface to be idyllic. And if you scratch the surface, it's built on a pile of corpses. And that's why I, this, this film is important, because you needed to take a place that you assumed was wholly good and corrupt it, because that is what empires are. They're not all evil um, fascist, you know, stormtroopers. Not all the time. Sometimes empires present as benevolent and are in fact tyrannical. Yeah, and you can't heal anything until you tell the truth about it. Yeah, and similarly, it is the task of the new generation to tear that shit to the ground. We can move on to regret and uh, the fallen warriors. It's Valkyrie. Again, this, this ties in with uh, the fact that Taika Waititi is of Maori descent. The idea of a people, warriors born, being demoted and disenfranchised and specifically getting handed a bottle as drown your sorrows in this. Uh, it applies to the Native American, it applies to the Maori, it impl- applies to uh, South Americans. It's the erosion of dignity. And Tessa Thompson's performance... Uh, I mean, can we just say before we carry on, everyone's performance in this was fantastic. Everyone in this was on top form. Just so we don't have to keep coming up with superlatives to describe how great <laughs> they were. Yeah. Just take it yes. as a given. Absolutely. Everyone was fantastic. But uh, Thompson's... Like you know, layer of uh, aggression on top of um, this this brittle underlayer. Re- you know, really spoke of somebody who needed a sword and can't really use it, and has to sort of ply her trade doing what she's able to. But but that specifically means that as miserable as Valkyrie is, she goes on living for longer than the span of Thor's life because she's older than him. Her downfall came before he was born. That is a long time to love the bottle. I love that they never have to need to to spell out that she is the way she is, not just because she lost people, not just because she was defeated, not just because, you know, the, the woman she loved, which, you know, you can kind of infer a little bit if you know the character's sexuality and... Um, I'm sure we'll see yeah. like a deleted scene or something, but like that particular woman who was between her and Hela, that's that's probably her lady lady. But like, it's not just because all that happens, it's because she was thrown at Hela with the rest of the Valkyries. Odin had to have known exactly what was going to happen. Mm. She was thrown into the meat grinder to die, maybe to buy some time, maybe to just see if it would work. But like, Odin fought with Hela for how long? He knew what was going to happen to the Valkyries, and when she realizes that, of course she turns to the bottle and leaves Asgard forever and is like, no, F this, I'm done. This is no, no more. Shades of World War One, there, the idea of just throwing your young people at the enemy just mm-hmm. because you have them. Mm-hmm. That's sickening. And also very colonialist. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. You, you've got this elite fighting force, and as far as you're concerned, they are disposable. Somebody said that, that the, those shots where they were attacking Hela uh, uh, looked like uh, panels in a comic book, and 
I have championed comic art for years and years and years. But I'll say right now, I wish comic art looked that beautiful. That's a <laughs> that's a series of Renaissance paintings, much like the beginning of Wonder Woman. Again, that's yeah. that's yeah, so striking and beautiful. Yeah, we, we can't get Alex Alex Ross to do every panel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I could accept it being Alex Ross, um, but there's, there's just like a lot of the time, you just got to get the comic out there. It's not about spending ages and ages doing masterpieces every splash page. Yeah, and they they make their references pretty well. The background. Uh, the background to the play at the beginning um, looks very much like a comic panel. They actually used a Jack Kirby panel for the back of the Grandmaster's uh, box, uh, stadium box, um, you know, stuff like that. Um, a lot of the designs are based on Jamie McKelvey's costuming for the characters, stuff like that. But it doesn't all have to look like a comic book. I love comic books, but it doesn't all have to look like one. It was Very nice to see Kirby's name in the end uh, end credits there. I'm sure he was uh, cited before yeah. in the first two, but um, it, it was yeah. right there on this beautiful end sequence. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. Stan Lee, and also, yeah, Jack Kirby did one or two things for this comic. Yeah. <laughs> it's very clear they're going for a renaissance sort of feel for the glory days of yeah. depiction of the past. Which enhances the biblical feel to it as well. The yeah. um, the the battle between uh, Thor and Hela towards the end. It it struck me, especially since they'd had the panels in the mural with um, Thor with the halo on. Um, that this is basically Lilith and Jesus. Yeah, Lilith, that uh, original child that the Bible doesn't like to talk about. Technically, mm. she's Jewish mythology rather than Christian mythology, but the Torah. Okay. It's it's mythological stakes. Yeah. Cuz it well it's it's the Norse gods so of course but it's it's on that on that level. Mm, absolutely. Monotheology. Mm. Oh. I, I think um as as we're talking about Valkyrie it, it's also important to bring up um Executioner here because I mm. think he's kind of a side of this as well. Um and and talking about like how people get roped into colonialist thinking and then regretting it yeah. as they're in the middle of it, and and this is kind of this is similar to uh, Mad Max Fury Road, um, where I've, I've completely blanked on the character's name. Sorry, Nux. Uh, you know, Nux is a very similar character to Executioner. He's somebody who buys into it initially, buys into this vision that uh, their great dictator is uh, is uh, in, you know instructing them in, and um, but then realizes piece by piece by mainly by exposure to other people, but also just a, a deep seated empathy that is there that what they're doing is fundamentally wrong, and then eventually coming to the side of good. Um, and I just I love because he feels like a weary soldier who's been fighting a cause that he no longer believes in, mm. um, and he's played for jokes as well. But like ultimately, I think he, that character ends up being way more heartfelt than he has any right to be. Like I heard, ex- I heard Executioner was in this movie, and I thought he was just going to be like a you know a glorified henchman, mm. and then he ended up they ended up doing something really interesting with him. Mm. Not least of which is Carl Urban's performance, because Carl Urban is goddamn amazing. He is fantastic in this. And one thing I really appreciated about him, 
and and how they played the character and it's a it's a pretty small thing and I could see a lot of people going oh well that makes it weak and it you know it doesn't give it the backbone but no for me it made it stronger the fact that that moment where he is called upon to do the terrible thing mm-hmm. that would cement his crossing over to the dark side as it were and he doesn't have to do it yeah. the way that scene plays out it goes a different way mm-hmm. and it and it is decided that it is not necessary for him to do that thing and i could easily see in another film in another universe that they go <laughs> no he has to do the terrible thing because we have to see how terrible and awful he really is he says uh, to hella that he just wants a chance to prove himself he wants the uh, um does he say recognition? She says recognition. She she says says recognition. He doesn't contradict her. Uh, basically, as well, you said, uh, Josh, she's been fighting for a cause. Uh, she gives him that cause. She gives him that recognition to to be able to uh, to fight for. And it, you know his redemption. And by the way, redemption arcs I, I will never get tired of seeing because it is very important that we put out to the world over and over again. It doesn't matter what terrible, terrible things you've done you can change you can put this behind you not necessarily forget about it you will be held accountable for it but you can do good things don't tell yourself there's no going back for me his redemption comes when he simply decides that the cause he wants to actually commit himself to even if he gets no recognition at all is saving his people I mean, his his running away at the end is a cowardly act, but mm-hmm. you know, then flipping that and just deciding, you know, this is worth it. Well, it is a message the- I need to see out there more. Well, and my comment too is the fact that it's clear, I, I, I at least to me anyway, uh, from the beginning of the film that he's just you know he's not used to really thinking for himself. He's just like, oh yeah, I want a job. I'd like to be recognized and. You know, Hella shows up and he's like, who are you? And like, boom, 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 she kills a bunch of people. And he's like, okay, if I don't fall in line, she's going to kill me. Okay. And he, I don't even think it was, he didn't really, he didn't really think beyond I'm saving my own life initially. And at first, oh, she's helping me, you know, she's helping, she's giving me a job and she's recognized me and all the, you know, all of that. So it's, it's even just starting from some from a self-preservation, not not even really evil. Yeah, he wants to be worthy. Yeah, and he for a while he confuses worthiness with loyalty. Mm. And I I think as well when you say about the redemption arc, Alex, and how important that is to say no matter what you've done, if you can be truthful about it and try to make amends for it, you can come back from that. I don't think Des and Troy are an accident. Hmm. I think there's a a nod there to recognising that some people's desire to protect their own comes from a good place, but how it manifests is not good. That scene where he goes down uh, defending his people from Hela is from the comics. They they, they brought that across and um, oh. did what the MCU films usually do, which is just to sharpen it and just really just like get it done in a few scenes. Uh, when Immigrant Song kicks in a second time, by the way, Immigrant Song specifically kind of perfect for for Asgard now. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean that that song. I mean I, I kind of wish by the way that they had saved it and just played it that second time. 
that the idea of that, that playing at the beginning just to make people sort of get up and say, yes, that was that song from the trailer. Thank God it's in here now. Yeah, it's great. And then they play it again later. It's almost that the, the, the one flaw with Thor Ragnarok is that it's too awesome. <laughs> but the song would have had more impact if it was just played then at the end there and it's like finally Asgardians finally fighting for something for the people rather than the soil and there's a very good reason for this to be only once when we meet Thor at the beginning he's doing his Thor thing he's smashing up disposable greeblies with Mjolnir on an alien planet effectively a palette swap of the Jotunheim fight in the original so in this regard Thor hasn't changed he's here to assassinate a big scary guy to prevent harm to his people rather than to avenge it that's about all he hasn't yet earned immigrant song and when it plays the second time, which should have been the only time, he is finally able to do his Thor thing without the hammer. He is the hammer. And he has one eye gone and the other far clearer. He has gone from a boy to a man to a king. He's earned it, and so have the people of Asgard. Can we just briefly touch on the music? Because I think the soundtrack for Thor Ragnarok is really strong. And I like that it goes all in on the kind of 80s inspiration, kind of having that synth in there to add character along with the orchestral music. And that the final battle kind of weaving the kind of immigrant song in and then having that, you know, that score as well as the bedrock. It's just really masterful use of music um like i don't like like you alex i don't quite agree with the dismissal of mcu soundtracks i think you know but i will say the winter soldier was kind of the last film that i felt like the the soundtrack was iconic Mm. this this feels equally iconic oh hang on uh uh doctor strange with all of its harpsichord yeah it's michael jackson man yeah, let's no. so. <laughs> <laughs> it just so few other. We don't get harpsichord much in other films. It's it's. I don't know. Like if you see the the cape flying up, like basically in this film when the harpsichord started and the cape was flying up and the silhouette on the window, I was like, oh yeah, Doctor Strange. Sharon, however, you said you'd forgotten that Doctor Strange existed within this universe, and you originally said this might be my favourite Marvel did. film. I did, I was Do you want to amend well. that statement? Yeah. Um, I, 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 well, as I said to you, I, I think um, my reaction to Doctor Strange initially um, was possibly due to other external influences that didn't necessarily have anything to do with the film. Um but I mean, I, I still think it's a really, really strong film. But at the time, I was considering it as a challenger for the Winter Soldier, and no, <laughs> over no. time, that's enough. <laughs> yes, um, that's that's really fallen away. Uh, but this might be Neil. We've hardly heard from you at all because we've just been yammering. I'm so so sorry. Like, if at the, the very least, Doctor Strange being in this again, it was um, fun. <laughs> It's one of my favourite bits. Uh, I I hate saying that because actually all of it is my favourite bit. It lets us some really comical moments. I love how they actually interweave the fact that the post-credit scene 
of Doctor Strange is actually there, but it expanded on. Mm-hmm. And they, they kind of show that Doctor Strange is kind of a little bit of a dick as well, which I did enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> Quite a lot of a dick if you're Loki. Uh-huh. And he's like so good now at what he does that he has total mastery within the um, uh, the Sanctum Sanctorum. Uh, it, it that speaks well of the future and, and where they can can go with him. He is kind of already a Tony Starkish figure in terms of the fact that Tony Stark turns up and he controls the whole situation, and it's really difficult to break out of what Tony's agenda is for where the conversation's going. So it's nice to see that they like you know when Iron Man finally has to step back, that we have someone else strong enough to at least keep that, that role to a degree. I mean, I don't know how long Cumberbatch is, is on for this thing. but um, uh, de- Again, uh, it depends on how they go, how much fun he probably has in the role as well, because it's yeah. one of the reasons why they did with this one was allow Chris Hemsworth to be funny. Hmm. Yeah. Which, as we discovered with Ghostbusters the man is really really capable mm. of it's also really nice to, we've mentioned Loki a little bit but it's really nice to see Thor and Loki just being around each other not trying to kill each other when when Thor the Dark World really took off was when they went off on their journey I was like why wasn't this the beginning of the film the original Thor is made better by the existence of Ragnarok not, not everyone's going to agree with me, but it feels like the already underachieving The Dark World is made worse by Ragnarok's oh, yeah. existence. Absolutely. Yeah. We were, we, yeah. I, I showed Sharon, because I saw Ragnarok first, and we went back and we watched Thor and then Avengers, both of which are fantastic Thor films, um, and then The Dark World. And we actually... Because it, it seemed like you might be seeing Ragnarok that evening... We f- I fast-forwarded through a lot of the Dark World that morning before you went to work, just so you could get in the Loki scenes and stuff. And it was like, right, so Loki's dead. rest of the film doesn't matter. Let's move past it. Because, like, there's so much in that film that is of no importance whatsoever. The ho- all of the Jane stuff, all of Jane's friends, <laughs> Darcy... Selvig, none of that matters anymore. It doesn't like it doesn't matter to Thor. It didn't matter in Avengers. It didn't matter in Age of Ultron. And like, they, it was good that they were there to receive him as humans in the first Thor to say, "What would it be like if humans met a Thor?" But after that, the, the, the one of the biggest drawbacks of the Dark World, apart from the fact that it's just a non-entity of a story, is that they force it to be about Jane when it shouldn't be. Yeah. It should be about Except Thor Natalie and Loki. Portman doesn't really seem to want to do it. Yeah, well, I, I can I can understand why because part of the problem with that is that they force it to be about Jane, but then they don't let her do anything. Yeah, she's they just a carrier. It, they force it to be about her as a cup full of ether. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Like cup runneth over with ether. Yeah, she, you don't get to find out how she feels about being in possession of this world destroying yeah. substance. You don't get her perspective on that incredible scene where um, uh, Frigga tries to to defend her. You don't get any of her perception mm. at all. And frankly, if I was Natalie Portman, I probably would have walked away as well. Understandable, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, yeah. Thor in the Dark World 
is a fairly bland and rubbish character when he's up. Like Loki's made great fun when he has a Thor to juxtapose himself against, yeah. And when he has an Odin to juxtapose himself against, that's possibly the reason he got so lazy when he was up in Asgard. He has no one to define himself by. Yeah, so that like was the, a, the, in, in another article I read. The, the funniest scene in like Thor: The Dark World is when he's freed Loki, and it's the whole Mick take conversation through through mm. the corridor where he changes mm. into Cap and stuff like that. Yeah. That that they're alive. It's like. My favourite interaction between these two is the elevator scene. Leading yeah. into help. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Get help. Get help. We're not doing good. But what Thor says to him, you could be so much more than the god of mischief. Just this is stuff that should have happened earlier. And I yeah. feel like we're gonna get a Thor four and just we're gonna scrub Dark World, not just say it didn't happen, but just go right. That was a non-starter of a trilogy. We've only just begun to really get Thor. Can we have another one, please? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, Chris, I think Chris Hemsworth agrees with you, Alex, because um, I, w- I was watching an interview uh, today in prep for this for this recording, mm. and they were he he was directly asked like how many how many uh, how many films do you feel like you have in you, and he said, well. I'll be honest with you. After four Dark World, I felt like there were I had one more in me, yeah. and then I'd be done. But now I feel like the character's really reinvigorated. I've got something really interesting to work with, and now I can I can see myself being in you know much more movies. And like it was interesting back back when we were originally talking about for dark world where the reports were coming out about you know chris hemsworth being apathetic about the series mm. and i think people were a bit unfairly sniffy like oh, oh come on chris like you you got this great job but you know there's something to be said about feeling you know creatively you know creatively bankrupt like I, like four in that movie's a non-entity and i feel like chris hemsworth felt that way too but now he has something to dig his teeth into yeah. and now he wants to continue he's been a lot they've also allowed him to be much different he's not as rigid in this he's mm. not the rigid thought that's where the comedy and i don't know how much it was scripted opposed to ad-libbed but you know he he shines so much better i, I just love the mick take that the open that is the opening of the film where it's the whole oh, i bet you're wondering how i got here kind of thing and it just works <laughs> yeah. especially I, I, i'm sorry i kept chuckling because in the scene where where he's talking to Serta and he's dangling by the chain, he goes, "No, no, hold on, hold on." Just go around. <laughs> I'll be back yeah, around. It's, it's, it's the rule of three, but it got funny every time, which I really enjoyed. He made that work. Immediately after Thor: The Dark World was Age of Ultron. His appearance in that is entirely superfluous. The only reason he actually could be is there at all is that he helps inspire the Vision by like he gives like the Vision can pick up his hammer and Vision gets his cloak from Thor he could lift right out of that film and no one would go where's Thor you you can understand why Hemsworth would be like well this sucks um, but Evans the other Chris was also getting cheesed off with playing Captain America uh, you know around about Avengers and before he'd really done Winter Soldier but it was after Civil War that he actually said in interviews you know what if Marvel asked me again they've got me as Cap whenever they want me because the character really has grown and the films have just exceeded in, in quality and it, the fact that it's happened to Thor makes me sad that it never happened to Iron Man during the Iron Man films but then Tony's had new lease of life with Ultron and then 
uh, Spider-Man. Spider-Man, yeah. You've got to bear in mind as well, he's very, very different for um, Robert Downey Jr. because he is ultimately, he, he's been an actor for a very he's older, long yeah. time. Yeah. And his career was pretty much done. So um, for him to then do Iron Man and basically be brought out to do the same thing a few times was probably less of an issue for him than it was for two men at the at not necessarily the very beginning of their careers, but certainly feeling like they had a lot more Hemsworth was at the beginning of his career. Evans had done them. some stuff, but nothing yeah, that but, really but, challenged but him. Both of them were, mm. were kind of... What they'd done so far was pretty minimal, mm. um, and um, Evans was possibly a little bit typecast as just the, the you know... Beautiful the man. Yeah. Lunkhead. Yeah. Um, in cellular. Yeah, and he, and he obviously <laughs> wanted to do more cerebral stuff. But because of the opportunities afforded to him by being Captain America, he now actually has access to things like Gifted, so he can do other stuff for him. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Stop here, sir. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And, and the other thing is, you know, Robert Downey Jr. arrived with Iron Man in a way that I don't think Captain America and Thor did. Like, yeah. Iron Man landed with impact and Boom. everyone was suddenly in love with Tony Stark. They took a you know a B list superhero and turned him A list. And that's gonna that's gonna inspire you. That's gonna keep the energy going when you're Robert Downey Jr. Whereas, you know, with you know the first Avenger like I don't think these movies are bad, but you when you compare them with the films that come later, mm. you, you can understand a d- degree of apathy on Chris Evans and uh, Chris Hemsworth part until finally you know they're given something to really uh you know put their teeth into like winter soldier is still my absolute favorite uh, entry in the mcu and if you if you're chris evans in the audience watching that for the first time i'd be like you know what i'm at you i've changed my mind i think <laughs> this uh, captain america lark um i was commenting i'm i'm so glad to see chris hemsworth getting to be Thor is smart Mm. I absolutely love the fact that he comes back to Asgard and he knows instantly what's going on Mm. he doesn't you know he figures out that's not Odin he is like oh yep that's Loki of course that's Loki yeah. That's what he's doing. I think it's a pretty good plan to get him to come out as well It's yeah. that was right out of the comics that was one of Simon's ideas nice Walt Simonson is really the touchstone on the comics for Thor for this movie, if you really want to get an idea of tone and character. And he can fly a spaceship and casually discuss the basics of quantum physics, which I I didn't expect. (laughs) It kind of reminds me of a scene from, I think it's the Avengers cartoon, I can't remember which one it is, where Hulk stood in the kitchen and two people are discussing something scientific and Hulk just comes out with the answer. It's like, yeah, ran a banner brain. <laughs> yeah, that was Earth's Mightiest Heroes. I remember that one. I love that one. The next uh, theme we've got is attachment, and um, uh, Korg pretty much nails it with a whole. Oh, it seems like you had uh, quite a strong relationship with this hammer. <laughs> By the way, I don't know whether this will work in America, but the oh yeah, you got you Americans can tell us the whole oh god, the hammer pulled you off line brought the house down in England. <laughs> oh man, did it work? The hammer pulled you off. The hammer pulled you off. Hammer pulled you off? <laughs> I think it took a second for a lot of people to get it, but yeah, eventually people figured out what it was. 
<laughs> it's more got to do with the way he says it than yes. the yeah. phrase. His delivery is incredible. That, Korg is Taika Watiti for folks who didn't uh, didn't actually yeah. know. For some reason, <laughs> yeah. I thought it was Reese Darby from uh, Flight of the Concords. But uh, yeah, no, he, like an immediate like c- kind of a character that you just like would insist is in all future Thor movies if they're going to make more. And you know, <laughs> the funny thing is that was never how I imagined Korg because he's from Planet Hulk and that. Yeah, you know what? <laughs> now I can't imagine him any other way than how he is mm. in Thor Ragnarok because yeah. it was so brilliant. Isn't Meek the one who ends up like leading to the, the death of Hulk's yeah. wife? <laughs> yes, that was the yes. other. That, that was like a little joke for me. Like, okay. Oh. Wow, <laughs> they've totally changed this. There's a there's a really funny um, uh, interview with uh, Taika uh, Waititi uh, talking about the what inspired him to create that character and, and that voice, mm-hmm. and he says like he was inspired by uh, bouncers in uh, Wellington mm. um, outside nightclubs, and you having these like big, massive, like bulked out guys, but they're the politest, gentlest people <laughs> in the world. And I'm sorry, we're at capacity. Uh, try again another night. <laughs> Just like having these, the the kind of contrast between someone looking like an imposing figure mm. and being really gentle and really and really polite and nice. Is that it, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, it gets across the feeling of. Yeah, this might be a giant rock person, but he's just a person on this planet. Like, yeah. he may look big and tough, but he's just the guy who got captured because he's made out of rocks. I, when I saw at the beginning um, of The Dark World, Thor obliterates someone from his race. Yeah. I was like, oh no, that was my cousin, but you know, it's okay because I didn't like him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and actually, they um, on the very first cover of like Journey into Mystery number, which Thor, Thor first turns up yeah. in, when he's like doing the hammer swinging around, he's fighting a bunch of rock dudes from the same planet. Yeah, yeah. Um, nice. But- but there's other senses of like the, uh, there's attachment the whole way through the movie. Everyone's kind of like stuck in a loop of of something that they are keen on doing. Like Valkyrie is very good at what she does, so she's become attached to that. And the um, uh, and Hulk has become very much attached to uh, being a gladiator, and understandably so. Um, Odin obviously over time became attached to this idea of like trying to sort of make amends and. Uh, somebody pointed out in an article that um, when Odin stops ruling for a bit, the Nine Realms fall into chaos. When Loki stops ruling for a bit, the Nine Realms fall into chaos, which indicates that despite ruling over them for thousands of years, Odin's never empowered them to govern themselves. Mm-hmm. That yeah. they they literally it's like oh we all of our infrastructure's fucked because we can't get. Um, you know, help from Asgard directly unless Odin says so. That's a terrible amount of power to all lie in one man. Yeah. Wow. Again, the legacy of colonialism. Mm. When the colonial power leaves, things start to fall apart because the colonial power had so much control and had their fingers in everything. Mm. You want to talk about yeah, it? it's a nice sort of visually demonstrated by the way that Thor... Like is is what do I do now that I don't have the power? You know he doesn't have his hammer anymore. Yeah. You know what 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 is there left? Yeah, the fact that he's attached his self worth, his power, his abilities to the hammer mm. 
but in the end like as we found out that's just always been a conduit but because in his mind like if i'm worthy it means i can use this hammer so as long as i've got my hammer i'm worthy of being odin's son and when he doesn't have that he loses a sense of identity mm. I, th- I think that as well is a reflection of the uh, the, the colonialism elements and, and it ties in with um, with what colonialism gave rise to which is capitalism the idea that things are the important stuff mm. and that your uh, your wealth and your success and your um, your proving that you're worth a damn is all manifested in physical things and when those physical things are threatened your sense of who you are is threatened and so much of the film is about losing that thing you're attached to and being able to survive it and just being able to carry on and go on and redefine your life but the one person who, when given the chance to recapture the thing that he felt would make him powerful, Loki takes the Tesseract. Now, I know it's for greater Marvel reasons, but I don't think he's going to be glad he did that in the beginning of Infinity War. <laughs> it showed that he was... Big, yeah. I think the big purple dude's going to want some words with him. Yeah. Uh, at the very, <laughs> be- uh, the very best, it'll be... Who has my gem? Oh, me. Yeah, sorry. Here, here you go. Sorry. Bye. Uh, and just like, <laughs> and he doesn't smite them all. But, um, you know, I don't, you know, maybe won't be. And I'm scared for Loki, frankly, right now. Speaking His inability of that, to let go. You just remind me of the scene where Hela walks into the vault to resurrect her army. Mm-hmm. And I just love the actually dressed the the nod yeah. that I made to the Infinity Gauntlets in the first Thor film where it's like nice. and fake so all of those fans going the gauntlets in there the gauntlets in there it's not in there it's just fake great it wasn't the Aya Vagamoto scene in there as well I think it was originally in people with eagle eyes and like DVD pause buttons but obviously we yes. already know that the real ones are oh, it was. in possession I got super straight. excited when I saw that and yeah whatever <laughs> they just have, repl- they have replicas in there occasionally it, yeah. it happens <laughs> And I, I do, I do like the fact that it is sort of, yeah. Um, it would be kind of stupid just to keep all these important things in the same place where everybody knows where they are, so they are always trying to get it. Hence, her. That's not bad. There's only like three things in there. <laughs> of any are real. I, I do like the fact that she walks past the casket of ancient winters. I think that that was it from the first one, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and goes like weak. weak. Yeah, that's a nice uh, re-establishment of power. I also love. Like, you said you loved Fenris, didn't you? Mm, yes. But uh, the idea that the um, army she raises... Obviously, there's always going to be an army of uh, robots and things like that that we can destroy um, without feeling guilty about it. But the fact that it's ancient Asgardians and they've got these kind of, you know, the, uh, the, the same... Like, their headpieces are the same as Odin's throne. Mm. But at the same time, these were the colonial Asgardians who conquered... Uh, all the uh, pl- uh, the realms, and it's like, well, you know what? Not not going to feel too bad about destroying them. But again, but you've got the metaphor element of what you are up against is literally the shadows of your past. Yeah. yeah and the fact that, like, Odin felt so shit. He didn't even give the warriors who followed him a proper, like, a recognized tomb. Like, he hit them in the basement. Them away. Stick him in the <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> like when I saw that, okay, oh, that's that's kind of cold. I- wow I thought she'd actually have to go to her actual tomb but no he actually hid the dead bodies of her warriors yeah. well he arranged them nicely it'd be a nice circle pattern yeah. it, it I mean, it's, really it's lovely nice. tomb down there yeah. <laughs> I mean even filled a pedestal just for Fenrir 
Yeah. I would too. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't seem like it's a respectful way because we've seen how they honor their dead. Like they they do the whole I mean oh, they yes, do the yeah. Viking funeral thing. I mean it's not just that he didn't give them a tomb, it's that he didn't do anything to show that yes, this is this is how they get to to go to Valhalla. It's mm. almost like he was like, "Nope, you're not worthy of that because you were part of the stuff that I'm painting over." Yeah, yeah they're, they're not the honored dead. Although Hela does say that once upon a time, Asgardians were buried as heroes. Mm. The, the the whole um, dissipating into the universe is something that she sneers at. Mm. Hmm. Going back to femininity and sexuality, uh, which I think we only lightly touched on, uh, again, so many of these thoughts that popped into my head were from very observant articles, and it's those I have to thank. Uh, One pointed out that Thor, he locked on Earth until he could learn to play nice. Loki, he locked in the dungeon, but just still kept him close. Hela, he locked in some pocket dimension, nowhere near. Just the the idea of, oh, well, you're just... uh, It could be that she's a woman. It could be that she's terrifyingly powerful, and if he just shut her on a planet, then she'd come back, and if he just shut her on in a prison, then she'd bust out of it. But the fact that he also erased her from history mm. is quite horrifying. It could, it could be that she's the manifestation of his anima that he's terrified of, and therefore he's trying to repress it as much as possible. But you could also talk, look, take that as a uh, um, representative of religion glossing over the very important part that femininity has had, mm. specifically patriarchal yeah. religion, glossing over the part that uh, femininity played in religion pre, pre-Abrahamic faiths. Mm. Yeah, as in, <laughs> nothing gets born unless you've got a woman involved, so... Yeah. That's kind of important, really. Um, I think possibly one of the reasons why femininity and sexuality are quite easy themes to move past fairly quickly is that one of the fundamental elements to the the most important female characters in this um, is that their their femininity and their sexuality is, and I'm not going to say irrelevant, but it's theirs. They yeah. get to define who they are. Ultimately, Scrapper One Four Two is choosing who she is in that in that particular setup. Yes, she's retreated. Yes, she's a fallen warrior. Yes, she's she's hiding herself in drink, but she's choosing who she is at that point. Um, and that she's not been broken. Yeah, absolutely. And that sense of you, what you you mentioned about the the whole this is uh, not for the fa- the male gaze thing that um, that Fangirl Jean said, it it absolutely is so crucial to those characters and and who they are that it almost becomes not important because it's so fundamental mm. to to who they are. This is not for the observer. Especially to the point where, say, you know, Hela's one of the one of the feminine characteristics that she gets that is associated with feminine sexuality is her hair. Her hair literally turns into knives and kills dudes. Yes. <laughs> the only hat better than Galactus's. Bayonetta reference. Oh, nice. Hmm. Um, what you said earlier, uh, um, Josh, about uh, Mark Mothersborough, about halfway through. I realised, I think it was during the um, 
the escape on the uh, uh, Commodore jet thing, and it's like, he uses this for orgies, don't touch anything. I was like, well, that's a bit racy for kids. And then I realised, as the Mothersborough score starts playing... And it's just this sort of boom, 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 party thing. This could be a Lego movie. You could literally animate in the Lego movie style rather than the crappy Lego games, the earlier ones specifically. Um, but the, the new modern with the, the, the beautiful aging and, and, and fingerprinted um, uh, Lego uh, uh, minifigures in the style of the Lego movie and... Uh, to a lesser extent, uh, Lego Batman movie, and to a much lesser extent, the Lego Ninja Girl movie, um, over Thor Ragnarok, and barring a few slightly more racy moments, it works in that exact tempo, which underlines for me how kid-friendly this is. It's, it's, you know, Lyra was so excited to see this one, and when... (laughs) They were finally in the arena, and it was, you're incredible. She was, like, smacking me in the arm with excitement. She was like, yes, yes! <laughs> um, and, like, they said the thing, they said the thing. They said the thing. Speaking of children, um, somebody uh, said, how come Holt's talking now? Like, what, what, you know, what he couldn't really talk before. He was an ape before. Uh, why, why is uh, Holt talking? Um, he's been out... As Hulk, as fighting as a gladiator for two years, and that made me think, "Wow, Hulk is really only as old as Banner will allow him out to be." Because like, if you think about the first time in the Incredible Hulk during that flashback in the intro sequence, he burst out, he hurt Betty, and then lumbered off. That's a baby that's able to walk. You know, someone who like didn't mean to do that. He's experiencing birth pains. And that was just the chaos that a baby that's that strong could cause. And then every time the Hulk came out after that, it was just this thing of, of pure instinct. And then in The Incredible Hulk, Banner tries to aim it, in his, his words. Uh, and, and that's the Hulk becoming slightly more cognizant of the rest of the world and his place in it. And, you know, he's behaving around Betty uh, wordlessly in the cave as, you know, a little kid who's trying to make its mother happy um at the same time it's 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 angry but then in avengers it gets the hulk becomes more it begins to develop a little bit more and then in age of ultron there's that genuine sense of connection between the hulk and nat and at the same time the conflict of what she's going to do by taking hulk away and putting banner back in the driver's seat so now two years on hulk is a little what feels like a six-year-old kid who's finally being praised for smashing and it's the thing he likes and he's just he's being given a bedroom that he likes and he's being praised by the people when Thor says to him everyone on earth did hate Hulk and his little look of of you know I love Hulk in this film so much I've always loved Ruffalo's Hulk but I really love this version of Hulk insofar as he's like I can see the track he's growing on and his initial hostility to Thor which then becomes no stay friend stay it's it's adorable yeah <laughs> uh, well well Hulk's always been the the character that kids will relate to most because he's you know a a, a you know 10 foot tall green three-year-old and basically turning that into the text of his character was 
perhaps inevitable, but absolutely brilliant, especially the way that this movie, it, it, in particular in those scenes you've mentioned, Alex, handle it. Yeah, it's, you know, his, his room is full of toys. Mm. He's got his own themed bed. Like, it's, it's his version ball. of race car bed. <laughs> he's a bouncy ball. Yeah, he's a bouncy ball. <laughs> uh, Jerome and Neil, because obviously you guys are major as Hulk. No, sorry, it's just the, the reminder of the scene with the bouncy ball. <laughs> yes. <laughs> in my head. That's what heroes do. One of the biggest things I was looking forward to is getting the betro- uh, portrayal of Hulk where mm. he's a he is a child trapped in a powerful body mm. and he knows he, this is more of a confirmation from Thor but he knows nobody likes him yeah. Like, and the only reason he gets to be out is to hurt people because someone's in danger mm. but now he's had a chance to see these people like what he does um, he's been out for some time he has friends, he has things he has um, somebody who's like a benefactor, somebody who he perceives cares for him and like he's built a life in this place mm. and he wholly rejects them wanting like the the scene where Hulk doesn't want to watch the video is because partly he knows that he's going he's gonna have to go away mm. but the other part is that um, like that video hurts him because it's like deep down he knows that nobody really wants him around even um, um, Natasha but yeah, Natasha doesn't want Hulk. She wants Brett Banner. Yeah, I think the implication. And, you're yeah. Carry on. And you gotta remember, while Hulk, Hulk still has like Hulk has more access to Banner's memory than Banner has to Hulk memories. Yeah. So like he gets like a lot of the positive memories or emotions from those memories, but he doesn't get the context. And when it, when Henry interacts with these people, they don't. Uh, interact with him the same way like in the first Avengers where Banner says oh I'm always angry Hulk sort of learnt that trick for himself yeah I can stay angry all I want now although when Hulk says oh Hulk always angry it's almost in a like I don't know why way like it just like I, I don't know how to stop being like this like he needs a friend and so you know him reaching out to Thor at that point is lovely Oh god, yeah. I love that. I was like, I, I, I absolutely adored that. I, I, there's yeah. also a very physiological reason why Hulk is always angry. Hulk is a manifestation of Banner's. Um, uh, yep. I can never remember which is which. No, no, no. The nervous system that basically controls the fight or flight yeah. um, reaction. Adrenaline. The. Um, Parasympathetic. It's thank you. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, parasympathetic, and, and the sympathetic is the one that kicks in to say, "Okay, it, you've you've the threat is past now. You can calm down." And for the record, when Natasha does the lullaby and the, the stroking on his hand, that's what she's doing. She's switching on the nervous system that calms him down. It's um, it, there's a there's a theory that um, the ASMR triggers that some people get. Um, when you get the tingles in the back of your neck, you are feeling your sympathetic or parasympathetic nervous system switching on to turn oh, yeah. off the fight or flight. Mm. And so he can't be Hulk and not be angry. 
because it is literally what maintains it. What I, I thought would be um, a really interesting interaction to see and that they didn't really have time to explore in this, um, that they touched on in Avengers with I'm Always Angry, is more interaction between Banner and Hulk. Because yeah. ultimately, yeah. Banner is his father. Banner mm. has rejected him. That's part of why he's a response he's an angry response and he's an angry child because he can't get that validation and recognition from his father one of the biggest themes is always banner doesn't see hulk as a person Mm. but hulk knows that banner is actively separate from himself and it's that disconnect that always comes back to haunt him absolutely Mm -hmm. in fact you want to talk about sins of the father there you go that's banner is odin you set this up by yeah. being rejecting and, and making decisions for your son mm. that he then was left not in control of. It's because Banner is always frightened of Hulk, and it's not something that you necessarily that he can necessarily deal with. He can't he can't not be frightened of Hulk. He can't deal with that fear and go, now I'll just embrace it and let it happen. If he lets it happen, people could die mm. easily. In Banner's mic, the Hulk is him. Like this is just this is my I have an anchor problem. And he still connects it all with his anger. Like, I'm somebody who's, like, when I'm angry, this is what happens. It's not that this separate person who's now separated from my mind is in me. It's, like, these are just my raw emotions coming out. Yeah. Yeah. And it it could be argued, actually, that by having two years as a gladiator, what he's done there is switch from anger management to anger channeling. Yeah. Thinking about it, all of that time the Avengers spent hunting Hydra... They should have gotten Thor and Hulk together somewhere remote over and over again. Just had Thor and Hulk bond. Because Thor is the Hmm. one guy on the team who can take it. Mm. Thor is the one guy that Hulk could basically lose his temper and start smashing. And Thor can basically push him him back off again. Yeah, it it shows by how like friendly he is with Valkyrie because Hulk is some constant energy he always wants to wrestle wants to fight so yeah. having warriors as friends like Val ha- uh, um, Asgard like a set in in a way like he'd fit in there because he's always ready for a fight he's always got that yeah. energy that is associated with the Asgardian culture so when he's yeah. in like a warrior like race um, he in He's cal- he seems calm, he interacts fine because that's an acceptable thing for him to do. Yeah, I, I was I was gonna say um, while Alex is talking, like Valkyrie has kind of like they hint at the fact that Valkyrie has kind of been that yeah. for Hulk, that she has been like his sparring partner, and and you know they that that little scene that and it's tiny, but it speaks volumes where she comes into the room and they start like having a little fun little fight with each other and it's like it says a lot about their relationship about how long they've known each other but also about how hulk has gotten a handle on himself and uh, and is more aware and more and it like like you say it's channeling it's kind of directing that fury in a constructive way instead of a self-destructive or destructive way Mm. um and and it's fantastic stuff and if you want to look at the that classic trope of a a male character that cannot process his emotional um responses except through a female character um this is his third go-round at bouncing off a a woman um, emotionally 
and Betty he nearly killed and Natasha he terrified but Val can take it yeah and both uh, Hulk films Ang Lee's Hulk and Incredible Hulk uh, both took the uh, wrong tactic which is to make Hulk just tragic just scary just this you know oh if, if, if only he wasn't Hulk um and you know at the end obviously incredible the whole point is is to aim it they're still because of Universal being dicks this, I mean this is basically the closest thing to a film where it's funny sad about Hulk like that, that Hulk is a character you need to love this is I think I said this in the past the idea of a Hulk film that kids cheer for the Hulk yeah because mm-hmm. you're supposed to like embrace it and that helps with the idea of Banner slowly getting around to embracing it. Mm. And if you if you look at, at um, Hulk as sort of the, the werewolf reflection within mm. the Marvel Universe, it's it's that element of, oh, I wish I wasn't this creature. Yeah, yeah, but you are. Yeah, but it wouldn't it be so much better if I could find a way to contain and not be this creature? Yeah, but you are. We have to get Ruffalo off this same tip of, I'm terrified of this guy, let's stop doing this. Not now, no, this is just stressing me out. And yeah, No, it, yeah. And we can't evolve that unless Hulk is given the, uh, and Banner are given the amount of screen time it takes to actually evolve the Hulk. Absolutely. And, uh, and the, the starting point for this, by the way, is the line in Age of Ultron, which I still resent every time because it's, it's to me, it's not right for the character. Mm-hmm. And it's when he grabs Wanda. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's not quite as bad as fucking throttling Jennifer Connolly in Ang Lee's Hulk. No. And Jennifer Connolly being just never talking about fine. that again. This is fine. You know, you grab me and yeah. strangle me, but that's what men do. It's okay. Oh, yeah. it's okay, or, baby. It's or, okay. Ultimate, or Ultimate Hulk's ultimate... Oh. <laughs> But, but if you're gonna if you're gonna have that, if you're gonna have Banner express that and do that and, and basically admit to the fact that yeah, he really does get that angry sometimes, then have him admit it. Have him admit yeah. it and process it and deal with no it. No time. No time. Exactly. Because no you time. might suddenly start making a Hulk movie. Mm-hmm. And we can't <laughs> possibly have that now, can we? Universal. Yeah, I'll can't say go down that Stop being dicks. Uh, Tyrese Gibson's already offered you the chance to have a whole Tyrese series separate from uh, uh, Hobbs. So, uh, yeah. yeah. So you have ahead, Dom in one series, and then you have uh, uh, Hobbs in another series, and just Roman on his own in a third series. Spin offs, spin offs, guys. If you can't get along, spin offs. Why not? Why not? Yeah. Now I've got visions of some guy from Universal stood there with a stopwatch going, right, you've, you've got him for 45 seconds and stop. Scott Eastwood strides into Universal. Get out of here, Scott Eastwood. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Scott Eastwood. <laughs> You've not even cut your teeth yet. No one's demanding a Scott Eastwood film series. Okay, Scott Eastwood is. I do have one more point on the whole Hulk banner thing here. I do like how, like, they've given you stakes, like, they've shown you how much you like Hulk and you want Hulk to stay, but then you gave you you the stakes of what happens when, like, if you want Hulk for a while, banner Mm. has to disappear, like, and, like, it gives you that genuine fear by showing that he's lost two years of like more than two years technically of his life mm. and it like just picturing that in your mind of just one day like you're you're one person you're going through your day then all of a sudden you switch and two years later you're in a different planet different place like it's the 
it's like the top level of how you normally see him when he wakes up after mm. a Hulk, after turning into Hulk, just like in a different location. Mm. Now he's lost years instead of like but, moments. But it, it's it's worse than that because the the line um, that's really revealing is that in the past it felt like we both had one hand on the yeah. wheel, but this time I was locked. Uh, Hulk Hulk was driving and I was locked in the trunk. And the idea um, I might never come back again. The unsettling point at the end. Everyone's like, "Oh, what a brilliant ending!" Hulk's there, yep, in the yeah. spaceship. He didn't yep. turn back to Banner. He didn't yeah. go. Hulk finished now. Banner can drive. You know, let's restore some order. Hulk, fine, being where Hulk is. Thank you very much. That's yeah. possibly because Banner almost killed himself. It's a funny joke. Yeah, but yeah. he it's hit. A funny joke that they did in the Incredible Hulk too. Yeah, they redid that one with Ed Norton. Yeah, although he yeah, didn't go. Boing splat. <laughs> the, 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 um, the development of that, I would guess, is him accepting that the yeah. Hulk is good for him. Mm. That basically the Hulk is protective and an opportunity for him to heal. Like you say, he suffered some quite serious physical trauma in that landing. Mm. Um, <laughs> it's entirely possible Banner is going to need to sleep for a while for that to get better. Jesus. Yeah. Broken systems and renewal. People versus patriotism and the idea of home and farewell to childish things. All four of these can be wrapped up as the the end yeah. because uh, the summation of uh, um, Ra- you know Ragnarok as the purifying fire is that this is a broken ass system and you have to tear it to the ground and it has to go if you can. Like the the idea being that Odin passes it off to Thor you know and and it's up to Thor to basically start Asgard all over again and not make these same mistakes because you have to lose it it has to be gone well, one of the things I love about uh, this um, telling of Ragnarok is it, it, it changes Ragnarok from a terrible prophecy that may like we have to find a way to stop to this is actually what happens when you build a civilization like this, built on so many deaths and genocide, is that you make so many enemies that eventually they want to destroy everything that you've built. And it becomes a point where um, you have to acknowledge what you've done and eventually make some sort of recompense for that. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that um, uh, it just ends up being... Uh, like, we know that the giant... Was it Sata? Sata. Sata wants to destroy them. Like, you don't know why he wants to do it, but given the context of what Odin is and what he's done in his past, you can imagine, like, um, he may look like an evil person, but he may not have always been like that. He could have just been another person that they wronged, and this is, he spent his entire life trying mm. to get revenge. It's 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 the Celt sacking Rome. It's the fall of the empire. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. And uh, uh, by the way, like I, I, I love that they made this choice. The, yeah. the, it's the thing is, it's a brave choice, but it's not. So my my thought process was that they were just going to destroy Asgard. Um, people and all. I thought that's what was going to happen. Yeah. But the I, but rooting destruction as a form of realization, rooting that m- loss of home with, like, let's actually focus on what what's really important. 
Mm. What matters here? It's the people. It's our families. It's our friends. It's not this house. It's not this palace. It's not this piece of rock that we've decided to call home. It's our relationships. It's our bonds. It's that's our culture. That's our people. It and sure we, as shit is an ancient laws written by dead people, hundreds of years dead. Yes. Mm-hmm. And a willingness to go, not only is it okay for us to sacrifice that, it may even be a positive thing for us going forward to be unshackled by the chains of history and, you know, our broken systems. Like, let's sheath this um, horrible thing from our lives and try and build something new and better. Mm. And that that concept of building something new and better I think is absolutely key to this because there was with with that idea the idea that there is a cleansing fire that destroys the thing that was built on the terrible behavior and that we're going to go forward from that um if you if you're not careful that way lies Tyler Durden and um the the concept of um you know we want to go back to this this simpler time when we were we were foragers and hunters and and we we move around and ultimately that's where they end up but the bonds that are still there are really, really key. It's not everybody gets wrecked and it's just Thor going out there on his own, um, looking all Brad Pitt-like. Um, it's it's all of these people as a group. And I think that that the, the foundation for that is laid down in the fact that it's not the heroes that win this revolution. They have a, They take a spear point position on it, but it's the people that back it up, that, that allows it to go through. This is not something that one man with an ideology pulled off. This was a, a people who wanted to defend themselves and did so by defending each other. And I really like the fact they took the whole, uh, the symbol that Hela's power comes from Asgard itself. The fact that this is how Asgard is built and it's this massive symbol of but it was still built on these terrible things. The fact that it existing gives her power and the fact that you need to destroy it. I, I like the fact they have that thread throughout the movie. Like Absolutely. at first at first you just think, Oh, yeah, well maybe because she's an Asgardian she gets the power from there, but having it having the symbolism there like makes that yeah. point farther. And I think it's important that we view Ragnarok from a distance. The subtitle of the movie is not really something that we experience. We're not in the middle of Ragnarok. We watch it happen. Another kind of symbolic, metaphorical thing with the destruction of Asgard, like uh, symbols and... um, Symbols fuel nationalism, right? Yeah. So statues and and all of this kind of stuff is is the foundation on which nationalism is built. Destroying Asgard is like knocking down Civil War monuments. It's like knocking, you know, the kind of rejection of the red poppy recently in the UK of like this this used to be a symbol for the horrors of war. You have turned it into warmongering nationalism. So now I reject it. I'll still donate 
donate to charity, but I'm not wearing this red poppy anymore. And and I feel like that's what Asgard is. That that's it's the destruction of nationalistic monuments. It's like let's reject these symbols. I don't care if it used to mean something else to a certain group of people. It doesn't mean that now. It's big. It's corrupted. So let's let's you know let's demolish that statue mm. and there's i think there's a there's a marked difference between the idea of a historical statue that represents a historical person and a moment that that the the people who erect it want to um freeze frame and art which can often take the form of statues but art is more flexible it it doesn't um, it doesn't reproduce what someone considers to be a static moment in history. It's a representation of an interpretation, and it acknowledges that it is an interpretation, um, which makes it more interesting and more um, able to represent a people as a whole rather than just one side's view of what happened here. One thing that uh, the destruction of... Asgard actually, it, it, the first time I saw it, it actually hit me pretty hard because I could still remember sitting in the theater for the first Thor and nearly being moved to tears seeing Asgard put on screen for the first time. To the and same a music. Lot, exactly, to the same music and using a lot of the same shots, actually. Mm-hmm. Seeing a lot of the same monuments and then watching them be destroyed, it it, it hurt me physically. I, I could feel it emotionally just really took a lot out of me to watch that and that's kind of the brilliance of I think this film where Taika Waititi is yes picking it up in the third film but he draws so much from the previous Thors to kind of close off a lot of these um, thematic setups Mm. that were that we had before that never really got any resolution Gee, that ticks two boxes. The idea of home, uh, in that that that's the home that we're presented with at the beginning of, of the first Thor. This is Asgard. This is how it should be. Thor is then kicked out of his home for misbehaving, and then he gets to go back, and then he's stuck there at home when he actually wants to go back out into the world. When Hulk and Thor are arguing the first time, and Hulk is acting like he doesn't want Thor there, when Thor is flawed... After running into the like ele- the electric gate and then like he gets tased like that and then falls down, the Hulk laughs. He mutters as he's walking away. Thor home. He's been making it plain to Thor: this is my home now. This is where I want to stay. This is where I feel. And this is where I belong. Hulk has to give that up again uh, later. In fact, no, Hulk doesn't even do that consciously. Banner gives that up for him. Hulk once again finds a home in doing the right thing even if it is in a uh, a way that he d- he may not quite fully comprehend um and thor has to make his home the people and this again goes to the farewell to childish things a uh, volstag fandrel hogan all get killed mm-hmm. in the beginning those were the links to Thor's childhood and his growing... His, basically, he spent a thousand years in adolescence. And the beginning of his growing up was the first Thor. <coughs> and then the uh, Avengers was really his second movement. With the, In my youth, I courted war. 
we can pretty much rule out Thor the Dark World as actually an event that occurred in Loki's life, because Loki's the one doing all the growing in that film. Mm-hmm. Thor yeah. doesn't learn shit. And he doesn't, obviously, uh, nothing affects him in uh, Age of Ultron, Age of Ultron. really, either. I mean, even like, the, the visions of Ragnarok are of a completely different movie that never happened. You know, with Idris Elba going, It's you, you cause Ragnarok, and horror occurs. But here in Ragnarok, we can see that Thor has matured and is maturing before our eyes. Till the end, where he steps up to take the responsibility that was given to him in the first place. But the thing I loved about that scene the most, when he sits down on the throne, he has his back to the people, and then he turns around and looks at them and gives them a little wave in a nervous way. They're there to support him, but ultimately he is there to serve them, which is what a leader should do. It's not about, I now preside over you, I sit on a throne, you worship me. It's about, I'm going to try to lead us in the right direction. Yeah, he's leading from he's leading from the front. Like he's literally at the prow of the ship, facing the way the ship is going. You know, he's not facing them in judgment the way you would sit on a throne and face people below you. He's the captain now. But it is good because we finally get the growth of the character. He becomes so much more. But it's also very funny because they do what they do in comics, and as the character grows and becomes wiser and a better leader, who does he end up looking more and more like? Captain America. His dad? His dad. <laughs> but if we cut this Chris's hair, he's going to look like, oh, we give the other Chris a massive beard. Yes. That's yeah. Yeah. No, all the Chris's are oh, gradually no, no, going no, to merge Chris. into one. one does, mega Chris. <laughs> mega Chris, yeah. Why does Hemsworth, the largest Chris, not simply eat the others? <laughs> I think as well that the something I noticed with with this one because it repeats quite a lot here although they've done it before is the idea that if you if you see those things that keep um making him the butt of the jokes um it's lightning darcy tases him Mm. um he gets thwarted with an electrified net um, uh-huh. In Ragnarok, then the, he gets the thing on his neck that basically keeps electrocuting him. He's the god of thunder. They keep turning his own weapon on him over and over again. He is his he own worst Tony enemy. Stark. He charged Tony Stark to four hundred percent of capacity. Yeah. How about that? Hello. Robert of Loxley here with some Princess Thieves news for you. As of Tuesday, November the 7th, the novel will finally be available in the Kindle store. It's been months and months of on-and-off adaptation to get this particularly wordy and fourth-wall-breaking script into prose form, but we finally cracked it, and you'll be able to read for yourselves and share this with your literature-loving friends. But that's not all. Because you see, we've been very hard at work on something else within that same storyline. I think you had better let me tell them this. Absolutely, Merlane. Go right ahead. All right. I like the new beard, by the way. Thank you. This festive season, we have a fireside story for you that you'll all be somewhat familiar with already. It is none other than Charles Dickens' immortal tale of charity and redemption, brought about with some extremely effective haunting. A Christmas Carol. (laughs) 
Not many people know this, but the book is rather a favourite of mine, and in the Yuletide of 1882, several months before the events of The Princess Thieves, I took it upon myself to bring its particular brand of eye-opening, life-altering experience to a Duat you may also be familiar with. Needless to say, Captain Baltus was a very stubborn and formidable Scrooge, and things did not pan out entirely as I had foreseen. This tale, The Christmas Thieves, narrated by me, would be available in its entirety on the Kindle store and in audiobook form on Bandcamp on Tuesday the 28th of November. After this, we will be releasing the various chapters on the podcast feed for a limited time in the weeks leading up to Christmas Day. So you can buy it early and have the whole thing, or wait and listen to it entirely for free. And after that, we have another shorter story being prepared, which will be out early next year, released in similar fashion. But we shall tell you more about that rather exciting lost tale of the first outbreak of the Bargast sometime soon. And then, at some point after that, Steamheart will again resume its course. We thank you all deeply for your patience and support during this writing period. The time we are taking is to ensure its high bar of quality and the expansion and enrichment of the new century multiverse. So that's The Princess Thieves on the Kindle Store, November 7th, and The Christmas Thieves on Kindle and Bandcamp, November 28th, then released as a podcast throughout December. In the meantime, you might want to head over to newcentury.com, our website, for more information. And I think that about does it for Thor Ragnarok. So uh, thank you guys so, so much for being on the uh, the Ragnarok show. This was uh, a joy to record. Thank you for having us. Yeah, this oh, is amazing. Yeah. Always fun. And if you folks at home want to hear more, there is nearly an hour and a half of extra material that didn't make the final show. A lot of it was rambling, a lot of it was silly. We spent half an hour at the very beginning just talking about the idea of Disney getting the X-Men back. So if you want to hear the cutting class episode on Thor Ragnarok, all you got to do is jump on our Patreon and chuck in five bucks a month. As well as that show, you get access to a ton, a metric ton of bonus extra material that you can't get on the regular feed. The five bucks is from you to us to say, I love your show, guys. I want you to keep doing more. Let me help you pay the bills. The bonus material is from us as a thank you and an extra massive thank you to Joel Robinson, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Abel Savard, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, Ben Hayes, Kieran Datchler and Lorraine Chisham, our special $15 a month sponsors. You guys are our revengers. So, uh, where can people find you? Let's go back to the introduction I, introduction order. So, where can people find you, Brendan Agnew? Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter at BLC Agnew. You can find my written stuff at normannerd.blogspot.com. You can find more of my written stuff at synapse.co. That's C-I-N-A-P-S-E dot C-O. Um, and uh, 
you you can also occasionally find me yapping on these shows. So uh, become a Patreon and listen to more of these shows. They're good shows. <laughs> good shows, Brent. Thank you. Uh, Jerome, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me over at Game Burst with my co- co-host, Neil. Um, uh, we do a twice-weekly show. Thursday's uh, either a roundtable, either a replay or a played or just a general discussion. And on Sunday, we do the news. Neil? You can find me over at Game Burst, or you can find me on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash thekiddog, where I do my history of videos, and I am hard at work on a brand new video. Only as... (laughs) Only problem is, oh my god, this has turned into a bit of a monster. (laughs) What's it on? Visceral Games. Oh, rest in peace. Ow. Preemptively, let's rest in peace those guys who made Titanfall as well. Poor sods got getting bought by EA. It's it's the second worst thing that can happen to you these days. Yeah, you should listen to our new show. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Jerome. I was going to say that. Okay, uh, Joshua. Uh, You can find me at canandrince.com. Um, there you will find two podcasts. Uh, one is Kane and Rince, where we take a game or a, a series of games and dissect and analyze them in detail. The other is Sound of Play, which is kind of like a chilled out radio show where we play, that, uh, play all our favorite video game music. Nice. Karu. Uh, you can find me at sequentially-yours.com, where I talk about uh, comic books, very much like this, only more comic book-oriented. And um, my new video that I'm going to be working on pretty soon is from our trip to Italy, so I'm doing a deep dive into Italian comics oh, nice. and their history and kind of where they got where they are now. You can mainly find me on Twitter. Um, you can either Debbie Morse or uh, at bestit8300, and I'm... I'm generally I'm generally on Twitter pretty pretty often, so that's usually the best way to communicate with me. Over the next three weeks, we continue our comic book movie adaptation Bonanza. Two weeks from now, we've got Logan, then Spider-Man: Homecoming. But next week, we got some Justice League for you. We will see you then. So I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And schools out.
by the way, did anybody else? Because I got a really strong um, Lord of the Rings vibe through a lot of this, mm-hmm. and part of that was that when Kate Blanchett walked on screen, it was like, "This is Galadriel if she took the ring, isn't it?" Yes, of a dark lord, you would have a queen with a bitching hat. Um, now, is that hat the tits, or is the tits hat still the best? No, the tits hat is, is Galactus's, but it's not as good as hers, because, like, you know, it's hers she can just, like, smooth hair. it back and it's turn it into purpose. goth hair. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. You're Although, we did, one thing we didn't mention was the slight change to famiology that they did. Yeah, isn't she Loki's daughter? She's Loki's daughter, yes. Yeah. Lyra found out about that just before we went, and she was like, oh, this is going to be so exciting, and I was like, I don't think that's going to be the case. But it I gets better. Do you remember in the, the first film where Odin turned up on the six-legged horse? Mm-hmm. That's Loki's son. The horse? Yeah. The, the horse. horse. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember Look, doing that either. Loki's into some weird stuff, okay? <laughs> <laughs> when you spend your life shape-shifting, you do some weird stuff. This is is Hella, my daughter and sister. Uh, you call yourself Lord of Thunder, God of Thunder. <laughs> I have never met this man in my life. He's my brother. Adopted. 
Is he any kind of a fighter? <laughs> you take this thing out of my neck and I'll show you. Oh, listen to that. He's threatening me. Hey, Sparkles, here's the deal. If you want to get back to Ass uh, Place, Asberg. As God! Any contender who defeats my champion, their freedom they shall win. Fine, then point me in the direction of whoever's ass I have to kick. That's what I call contender. Direction would be, would be this way, Lord. Ah!